Hey everyone, Zach Dixon here, and welcome to our 60th episode of Animalators, curious conversations from the world of animation. Today on the show, we have Sarah Blank. Sarah is a writer, director, animator, and compositor based in LA. Sarah has worked with an incredible list of studios, including Buck, PSYOP, Imaginary Forces, Cantina, Elastic, and tons more. She's worked on some incredible projects, including the recent Travel Oregon piece, also Iron Man heads-up display, and the Game of Thrones title sequence. She's also worked as a compositor on films such as Thor Ragnarok, Ghost in the Shell, and The Avengers, to just name a few. Today, we'll take a dive into the process compositing season one's Game of Thrones title sequence, We'll talk about her transition from editing to animation, and we'll chat about some of her personal projects across multiple mediums. I'm excited to get into all of this and more on this week's episode of Animalators. All right, Sarah, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you. Thanks. Great to be here. Okay, so you are um, a woman with many hats and talents. Could you just tell us a little bit about um, what you are up to these days? Sure. I've been working, doing a lot of commercial stuff, um, a lot of animation. Some of it, um, I just did, I finished working on a bunch of screen graphics and stuff that possibly are in an Apple store near you. Uh, You know, they have like these big screens and we did a lot of kind of combined cell CG, very stylish, good looking stuff. And yeah, just been enjoying my summer and I'm going to New Orleans next week and things are good. Oh, very nice. <laughs> Just for, for fun, for family? Or? Pleasure. Pure pleasure. Nice. Very cool. I've never been, but that sounds wonderful. Great town. So a, a lot of work that you've been doing, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, compositing. You've, you've been kind of lead compositor on some very exciting and fun things such as uh, season one Game of Thrones title sequence. Um, and I'm guessing uh, subsequent title sequences for Game of Thrones as well. So there's always little changes, right? Actually, no, those were other compositors oh, gotcha. um, at A52 Elastic. But probably, I think I think probably a lot of the same team. Um, Kirk Shintani was a lead CG on that. He's amazing. Awesome, um, yeah. And still a lot of the same designs from Chris Sanchez. I was there for season one. So when this may seem obvious to a lot, but when I started out, um, I really didn't know what compositing is, even though I was actually probably doing it a bit. So for for people who are just starting out, could you just kind of give us an overview? Like, what is compositing? Sure. This is going to be a multifaceted answer. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Basically, there's like there's CG compositing where you essentially get passes out of um, out of CG and then you do any kind of fixing, you blend them together, you, you know, adjust color and light and put on any kind of lens effects. That's kind of traditional CG compositing. And, you know, there's a variety of software. Nuke is very excellent for CG compositing. Then there's, there's the kind of compositing where it's sort of live action filmmaking. You're either creating certain effects um, or also integrating um, CG fixing certain things, color correcting, painting out things you don't want to be there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of a lot of beauty work essentially is compositing. Okay. Yeah, where uh, you're fixing people's faces or buildings or whatever, um, changing signs. All of that is sort of in the world of compositing. Yeah, they're they're just sort of many different varieties of of that, different flavors. But essentially, I think I think those are. 
I think I've covered most of <laughs> I'm sure there's more. Yeah, yeah. No, that, no, that's great. <laughs> You've done a lot of compositing across like, you know, visual effects, but then also like on more, uh, you did some compositing on the, the travel organ piece that came out that everyone, including myself, was freaking out about, which is awesome. Um, but do you have any kind of um, pro tips for us about compositing that that makes sense to give on on a podcast, I guess? Sure. I mean, I think that maybe even if you're doing something that is, you know, ultimately kind of photo real, I think um, there's a way that you can look at something, you know, uh, like compositionally and, you know, maybe with an eye, you know, in, in the way that you would appreciate, you know, a painting or a photograph and really think about, you know, the balance of color and light and shadow and values and, um, I don't know. I think I think the sort of forest for the trees approach sometimes. Um, the other thing, oftentimes, what you do, and if you're compositing a sequence, is you you pull up thumbnails, you know, or just stills from the entire thing, the entire sequence, and you look at different frames to kind of color match. Or, um, but it's kind of cool too because you can tell a story essentially, you know, through shape and color, and you know what you choose to highlight, what you know what foreground elements you blur or, you know, background elements you blur. So yeah, it's sort of the, uh, the, the forest for the trees approach, I guess, or the, the big picture. So on, on something like Game of Thrones, would, would you work with a, a colorist at all? Or were you kind of in control of kind of the final color scheme? It was gorgeous out of the box. Um, <laughs> it was really good <laughs> nice. looking. Um, and then, yeah, and then Paul Yakono, I think is how you say his name. He's a great dude. He he did um, he did the final color on that, and he I did a lot of color correction. Where, for instance, um, the I think is the Dothraki Sea. It was not the right color because it was supposed to be all you know at, at the time when I got passes. So it was like, or or you know, in the wall, all of that stuff needed to be. Um, it kind of came in a different color, and I had to desaturate everything, turn it white, you know, um, or icy blue. Yeah, and there were certain. You know, it was uh, an early um, V-Ray project for for Elastic. And so, and also because just the main map was, I think, one big render. So the renders were really long. So there were certain things where it just was like not going to be possible to re-render if there was like a little bit of chatter in some of the gold passes or something. So that would be a time when sometimes I'd have to um, use some of the positional passes and change things in comp sorry if that was incredibly wonky no no, <laughs> and, uh, no, no. Um, it's fun to get a look into like kind of you know we, we have a very small team here there's, there's only eight of us and so when we're doing a big you know cg project um like our like bouncy smash trailer or something uh -huh. i'm doing like compositing for me is like like you know i'm also doing the final color and like it's you know it's a totally different process so it's fun to get that like look into you know what that's like at elastic or something like totally that. um because the, the the amount of resources are completely different. So yeah, absolutely. I you know so I did like a kind of a base. You know, I I pulled in all the passes. I did. Uh, there was another compositor, a junior compositor, who did a lot of amazing work on it. Uh, he did the main title lockup and that like the astrolabe shots. Um, yeah. Yeah. So oh, I guess this is kind of a funny story. That fun fact. You see these in in the title sequence. There are the a couple of moments where you kind of have like. Uh, this circular what's supposed to be like a lens mount you know like for those old cam like rotary cameras that have three lenses you know like a wide angle a 
uh, yeah, yeah. You know, that, that where you can switch them yeah, around. Yeah, kind of switches. So that, I remember. So yeah, the, yeah. Yes. So the conceit of those parts, when you kind of see that like blade almost come down in front of the lens, I made that. And the still no of way. it is, is, yeah, it's like this burnished, like the idea almost like if you had a Game of Thrones camera like <laughs> old you know film camera yeah. what you know in the kind of like just picturing like you pull it out of your dungeon and you have you know you're shooting the scenery with it yeah <laughs> so is that something you were just kind of playing around with or is that did that come from like a, a cd or something uh, oh no i mean i made it but i um yeah, yeah you made it yeah, yeah but it was like <laughs> he just wanted to see some kind of like lens shift or something and yeah like, oh, but that was this? his idea uh-huh yep very cool yeah how long are you on something um, of that scope usually? That was a couple of months, I think maybe two, three months, something okay. like that. And when you first came on, like, was there already like lots of renders to work with at this point? Uh, it was still, the renders were kind of coming in fast and furious. They were still, yeah, but they had been working on it for a long time. Chris Sanchez did a ton of beautiful concept art. Um, you know, there was just so much research and clearly a lot of love that went into that one. Yeah. Well, sweet. I, let's jump back in time a, a little bit. I understand that you went to uh, NYU. Uh, so tell us a little bit about um, kind of your, your education background. So I went to NYU for film school at Tisch uh, School of the Arts, and I wanted to do kind of a hybrid animation, live action. So this was like I started in 2000 and I graduated in 2005. And back then there wasn't you know, what I think has become like motion programs or, you know, they're, they're didn't, didn't exactly exist back then. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so I wanted to make like, I mean, I love Michel Gondry. I wanted to kind of make these arty, effecty hybrid movies. And uh, yeah, so I, I actually did get to do a lot of that stuff. I did a lot of production design and um, did a lot of animation, did stop motion, did some CG. Um, so I got to try my hand at a lot of different stuff, and which was really fun. Very cool. Uh, so coming out of school, what was kind of your, I don't know, what, what was your mindset back then? I think I was just in sort of panic mode. What am I, what job am I going to get? <laughs> am I going to, you know, and wasn't. Yeah. And it was also kind of complicated for me. I'm sure this is the case with a lot of people where, you know, you do a lot of things in school, you like a lot of things, you're like, I love editing, but also production design, yeah. but also animation. And, you know, and so, and, and, you know, and writing and directing and, and then, you know, you meet with people and they're like, whoa, 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 kid, like pick a thing. And, <laughs> and um, so, I mean, I sort of, so I, I landed, luckily, um, uh, at Nomad Editing uh, in LA, which at the time was working on all of those Apple silhouette ads um, for you know I, early iPod, and, um, which was really fun. And I also, but doing that, I got to see um, you know I was like a junior, like vault person, um, you know, making my way up to assistant editor. Um, but I got to see, I got to actually go and like deliver dubs to VFX houses, and that's in Logan. Uh, did a lot of that stuff back then. There was a place called Sea Level. And I kind of realized like, oh, hey, I know After Effects, like there seemed to be a lot of people doing this. I animate, why, you know, it just seemed to be, I love editing still, but also just the fact that, yeah, it just seemed like there were a lot of jobs and they seemed like fun jobs and I wasn't wrong. Yeah. 
How does actually editing work into that compositing process? Maybe even on the example in Game of Thrones, are you as the compositor kind of handling some of that editing role or are you working side by side with an editor? Ah, so interesting you said Game of Thrones because that one's actually, that's an outlier. Oh, Um, But it's interesting, so I'll talk about it. Um, Usually what happens is uh, there are a ton of extremely talented VFX VFX editors. On commercials, you get um, a locked cut from the editor. Again, you'll oftentimes you'll get if it's something where you're animating to music, you'll get, you know, even if it's a temp track, you'll get something to um, to use as a reference and super important for timing. You know, if it's the kind of thing where it's live action and the picture's locked and um, you know, you're adding elements later, then obviously, you know, that's extremely important that you have this locked um, picture. And, and, you know, oftentimes sound to work with. Would this be locked in previs then? Oh, do you mean for... On the visual effects side, sorry. Oh, for visual effects? Yeah. If it's something with CG, oftentimes, yes. You'll have, you'll have um, even a rudimentary, like a software render reference to work with. But also with compositing, usually you're not going to get... Like maybe you'll have that as like a quick time reference to use. But... Um, but usually because you're getting, because the CG artists and the uh, animators have, have themselves used that reference when you're getting the plate, and, you know, the live action plate and the CG elements and everything, usually, you know, everything is perfectly timed or, and, or, you know, you know, gotcha. yeah. you know, it's, you're not getting extra frames on the beginning or end or anything. Sometimes you're getting handles, but it'll, it'll usually match to the plate exactly. You'll get the same frame numbers for both. So there's just no confusion. And then, well, so, but the interesting story about how the Game of Thrones editing (laughs) worked was that um, because Angus Wall is an editor, he was uh, David Fincher's editor for a lot of years. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the way he likes to do things is there's, I guess, you know, I'm sure they tinker with um, all the previs and, you know, they make before, before they commit to real long renders and all the resources towards that, you know, there's a lot of um, kind of rudimentary software and renders that come out of CG. And uh, so all of that, we went through that whole process. They rendered stuff, you know, it's final, they did color. And then in the flame bay, Angus Wall likes to tinker with the time, speed that shot up, slow that thing down. (laughs) So that's not usually how it works, but um, it's pretty cool that he does that and he does it well. That's awesome. Um, so a little bit ago, you said that when you were coming out of school, um, someone told you or you you felt like you needed to to pick a thing. Now with kind of the this you know vast experience across over you know many different roles, what's your take on that now? I mean, I think it's probably still good advice, <laughs> but it's not something I follow. I mean, I think it's you know honestly, I think for some people it's kind of a blessing and a curse. Hmm. You know, it makes you interested in a lot of things you're curious, you teach yourself stuff. It's great. But I think, you know, you can also have a hard time being particularly focused on anything and you jump around, you know, I don't know. It's, again, it's what I like, but I don't recommend it for everyone. (laughs) Um, You know, I think sometimes it's great to sort of just concentrate on one something and, you know, do it full heartedly. And, but I also think that with, animation with a lot of the kind of work we all do there are so many things that are so interconnected so it's like 
if you are into photography or music or theater or, you know, these are all real sister arts and, you know, reading, literature. I think it's just, I can't help but think that, you know, being passionate about a bunch of these things, you know, won't inform your work in some way. So with that in mind, do you like kind of pick chunks of time? I mean, to, you know, I'm going to, you know, do compositing for a while or I'm going to write or VR. Do you, or is it just kind of, I don't know, do you have kind of stretches of time where you dive deep into one thing or do you always have a lot kind of going at one time? I'm so grateful to have a, a freelance schedule where, again, I can't always predict it, but at this point I kind of know there are real seasons, you know, where it's sort yeah. of like, I mean, obviously Super Bowl <laughs> season or, you know, sometimes, I don't know, like, I think it's, I forget, sometimes summer gets a little slow, which is kind of nice. Anyway, I feel grateful that my husband, who also, Dan Blank, talented animator, uh, designer, director, compositor, he also, um, writer, he, he and I basically have complimentary schedules and, uh, you know, a lot of the time we're able to take chunks of time off and really just focus on personal projects. So as freelancers together, I mean, since you're both freelancers, essentially, is it sometimes hard to coordinate schedule? This is like super in the weeds, but I, I feel like it's it's tough as a freelancer to like, you know, be diligent in taking time off. Yeah. And part of it, it's sort of, you know, we love to travel. We love to, again, you know, write a script, take, you know, take a month, take a couple months, yeah. that kind of thing. But sometimes you sort of know, like, in particular for travel, it's like if you have a weird week off in the middle of a month, you know, like, okay, I might miss out on a booking. Um, it might be something amazing and I'm just not going to be able to do it. But I put this thing on the calendar. I'm excited about it. I'm going to do it. <laughs> you know, yeah. I guess if you, you coordinate it, you do it, you know, far enough ahead of time. It's just, uh, it's on the books, you know about it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit then kind of about work-life balance a little bit? I mean, obviously, uh, you're, you're both doing, you know, freelance work, which can have long hours, but then you also both, you know, you write together and, and you also do personal projects together too. Do you like make active time for just like, we're not going to make anything right now? Yeah. Um, I, I should also say we do not write together and we do not do personal projects. Oh, okay. 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 <laughs> we are both, we are both like headstrong Leos doing staying in nice, our own lanes, nice. you know, <laughs> um, we do, we do work long hours. It's LA. We have some brutal commutes. Um, but I think that, you know, at least for me, when I'm, when I'm working on a job, I don't do a ton of my own stuff. You know, when I get home at night, I see friends, you know, we watch a lot of movies. We, it's just, it's, I think that that's the way that I, you know, maintain my sort of like sense of self and sanity and everything when sometimes I'm working just on stuff that's stressful or, um, you know, and again, and, I'm, and also I feel like the fact that I work with a lot of friends helps me to maintain work-life balance even when I'm there. It's, you know, it feels like, ah, I'm at a studio with like, people I just genuinely love and get to catch up with. And, you know, so that's nice. And yeah, I mean, I do actually think that what ends up happening is that when I have time off, I almost feel like that can be almost like more stressful or, I mean, it's great. I'm so glad to have it, but I realize like I'm a terrible producer 
because I just expect like, get up, work, you know, <laughs> you know, feel ashamed that I haven't got more done in a day, you know. Oh, yeah, I feel so, the same way. Yeah. So there are times, especially if it's like, a, you know, I'm working at a job that's the hours are pretty, pretty chill. And um, there are friends. I'm like, woo, this is like, <laughs> <laughs> this is sort of a work vacation. Like, while we're on the subject, um, personal projects, I understand you are working on um, some stories called California Bloodbath. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, uh, of course. I basically have um, a repository of, like, some of them are half-baked, some of them are great <laughs> ideas, <laughs> um, but I've turned into a bunch of short stories. They're all kind of site-specific, humor dark humor, um, horror, short stories kind of set across California space and time. So it's like, you know, 1960s cannibal mermaids versus surfers, beach boy <laughs> surfers and, nice. you know, that type of thing. And basically a lot of these ideas started almost as like visual projects or, you know, but it just seemed like writing them down would be a very fun and satisfying way to just plant a flag, you know, kind of work on, develop an idea, um, organize my thoughts. And it has been. But also, I, you know, I think that as much as I love writing scripts and everything, there's something just that's a little disappointing when it's like, uh, you know, if you don't make the script if you don't you know make a short film off of some or feature and you're sitting there with this an unfinished script it feels like I don't know that people do much with that script and you know that work just seems like sometimes it kind of dies on the vine so it's kind of lovely to be like hey uh this can be something that a value at every step of the way and feels like you know, again, I think maybe there's something that also works with my schedule where because I can't sit and just always get the thing out in one sitting where it's like I can come back to the writing yeah. and then later I can turn it into a short film. And then, you know, it just feels like you can do it in an incremental and satisfying way. Yeah. You mentioned kind of writing short scripts or, or a feature script. Is that something that uh, you could see yourself doing at some point? Oh, yeah. it's. I mean, it's something... Maybe this is like film school withdrawal, but it's something that I've always done since, you know, and again, all of them pretty much unproduced. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. It's like, um, uh, so then they got turned into short films or excuse me, short stories. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So I think on your website, you made mention that you're hoping to maybe um, kind of publish a collection of these stories or something. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm almost done. Oh, no way. Yeah. That's cool. Do you have like a kind of self-imposed deadline on that or? Uh, it's like, I'm like this year, this calendar year. Uh, but nice. I, yeah, yeah. I've said that, I've said that for the last couple of years, but, um, this is the one everybody. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. Well, the reason I ask is more of just cause like it's sometimes it's hard to, to kind of put deadlines on yourself or not put deadlines on yourself for some people It's just cause you know, it's, it's easy to kind of just move on to the next personal project sometimes when things get hard. Mm -hmm. Um, or you get stuck. Yeah. You know, there's obviously an unpredictability about, um, you know, a freelance schedule mm -hmm. and like in a great way where there's just, it's, it's hard for me to say no because I love the work I do. And there's, there are so many projects that are like, it, that sounds like so much fun. I would like to do that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. 
so before we started rolling, you, we also talked a little bit about um, kind of a VR personal project that mm-hmm. you've uh, been working on. Yeah. So one of my stories um, that was recently published, I um, it's kind of like a weird tone poem sea shanty about ghost riders on the Salton Sea. They're like all old, gross sailors, zombies falling apart. And they used to have these races uh, out in the Salton Sea, which is this like decaying, evaporating (laughs) man-made lake. Uh, But anyway, uh, so it kind of feels like that would be something particularly because it was in the round. And I can kind of see that like this Mad Max heavy on the particle effects animation and you know, I don't know. I think that there's something too about um, binaural audio in VR and the kind of like, also just, just, you know, speaking as someone who clearly is like very distracted, I'm like, okay, if you strap me into a headset and read to me and, <laughs> you know, I get to look at this like weird, creepy environment around me. Yeah. It's just, it, it's, that sounds like a thing that I'm kind of interested in and seeing where that goes. So while we're on the kind of VR topic, um, we, we'd also talked a little bit about user interfaces in VR. Um, it's a little bit of kind of an uncharted territory. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you've done so far and, and kind of where you see that heading? So I think largely because of the work that I did, the interface work that I did on Iron Man 2 and, you know, where Tony's in his heads up display and um, some some of the other, I guess, some of the avatar interface stuff that I worked on. My husband and I did a project for Google, which was sort of a research and design, research and development, excuse me, design project, (laughs) um, kind of trying to figure out like what a, um, like a a VR UI um, or like operating system would kind of feel like what some pitfalls would be. And some of them were just very kind of basic physical, you know, constraints where it's like, all right, so if you are kind of the central pivot point, you're in sort of like, well, like, you know, there's just so many questions. First off, like what is, what wouldn't be annoying or, or nauseating or, you know, like literally nauseating because, you know, there's a lot of just, you know, looking around what wouldn't be comfortable, physically comfortable. You know, the thing that we always, maybe this is kind of like old hat now, but everybody always used to joke about, you know, the kind of UI stuff that you'd see in like, I guess, is it um, a minority report, the whole like, mm-hmm. um, you know, you had like Tom Cruise reaching around and pulling, you know, like grabbing up oh, yeah. every time he wanted to check his mail or, you know, look at, <laughs> yeah. and you're like, oh my God, you would, the ergonomics of like this thing would be awful, you know, if every time you wanted to go to a menu, you had to, you know, <laughs> reach around your back and do, you know, whatever. So thinking about, um, you know, if you wanted to check mail, if you wanted to do make a phone call without leaving a game or a movie or, you know, what's the like screen within a screen experience? What does it mean to change your application? You know, do you have a dock? What does your dock look like? You know, are there kind of cool tricks you think about like, you know, that we love to exploit in like commercials and music videos, things like infinite zooms or, you know, kind of the like, you switching out a like a 2d image for a 3d image you know mm, yeah 
again, like what is a cut? What's a transition? How do you make those things um, appealing, not nauseating? Again, I keep saying nauseating because a lot of this stuff really, you know, messes with your inner ear or your, you know, there are problems still that they're trying to work through with latency, which again, it's a lot of people just get very nauseated. So, um, <laughs> so you know, these are kinks that are being worked through and thought about. And it's cool that, you know, while there's sort of the um, narrative implications and the sort of like figuring out how to, you know, provide amazing experiences, user experience that it's also like, and also how not to make people barf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a good thing. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, we're, if we're going to be spending more time in these spaces and actually trying to do something productive, um, you know, we're going to need like shorthands and mm -hmm, shortcuts mm -hmm. and things like that. And, you know, just like the ability to save and do things that I think, you know, we've relied on, you know, kind of mouse mouse or touch inputs for, for so long. Now we're going to have to figure out kind of brand new ways to interact with all those things. It's exciting, but I also feel like we've got a really long way to go before it's like kind of usable, especially in like a professional space. Yeah, totally. And it's so funny because it's just sort of like, I mean, it's obvious why, you know, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and every, you know, the early computer people pioneers and it, you know like everybody just kind of figured oh well you know the icon for you know your mail program looks like a letter yeah. or you know that you know just yeah. sort of like that obviously you start with sort of the known like applications and the you know the ways that mm -hmm. you know you think about well if you're in vr and you wanted to write a compose a letter you know <laughs> there are ways that like we just think about it in terms of what we do now and you know it's like the starting point oftentimes I think is like a direct translation from, you know, existing technology, but obviously I'm sure like very quickly, you know, if you want to do those things in those spaces, there will be new and different and probably streamlined or more conceptual or, you know, ways to do things. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about, I mean, you've had such a vast uh, industry experience working, um, you know, across, you know, visual effects, um, traditional animation, um, CG, all, all kinds of things. Um, you've worked at a lot of studios as well, too. Kind of with that perspective, could you talk a little bit about, you know, some things that you found that kind of all these studios have in common um, in regards to just making, you know, top level work? I mean, I think that they're, you know, a lot of the tools are the same or, you know, at every, a lot of the software is the same. Um, mm -hmm. But it's funny because I think that there are times where artists get really pigeonholed where it's like, oh, well, you're a motion person or like, you know, you do, you do like motion graphics or you do a lot of type animation. But a lot of the time, you know, the same techniques and the same software and the same person can do just a variety of different, different stuff. I, I mean, I, I definitely you don't blame any company or, you know, whenever like producers are, there are times where it's like a producer will, you know, show you somebody's reel and they're, and they're looking to hire somebody, you know, or bring somebody onto a team, but they don't have the very specific thing that they're looking for, for the job. It's like, Oh, there's no example of like glowing text in this person's reel. But, you know, as an artist, you can look at a person's reel and kind of extrapolate and say, well, they can definitely handle this thing. Like, look at, you know, all this other stuff that they do, um, even though there isn't like the very specific example of a thing that they're looking for. Um, yeah. You know, so I think that there are ways where it's a little tricky where, you you know, there are reasons why certain um, studios don't have that kind of institutional 
memory. You brought up an interesting thing is like how how do you personally not get pigeonholed as like, you know, just a compositor it's or, tough. or just an animator? The answer to that is actually that I do different things at different studios. Because you do get <laughs> there's sometimes, you know, you can kind of be a generalist yeah. and you know, and I have a couple of places I work where um, they use me for a bunch of different things. But there are some studios where, you know, I do mostly nuke work. There are some studios where I do Cinema 4D and After Effects stuff. There's some where I just do After Effects. It's um, There's some where I'm much more on the comp side, much more some there where I'm like basically doing stuff that's like essentially like closer to cell animation. So it's, you know, and everything in between. Yeah. Have you been able to make a transition within a certain, um, you know, group or, or client? Yeah, sometimes. Um, it's rare because usually when, again, with freelancing, um, when they staff a job, they, you know, they kind of, it's like the Ocean's 13, Ocean's 11, whatever they, <laughs> you know, they really, even if you can jump over to a different software or do a different thing, usually they have somebody who's doing that already. So you're like, okay, I'm good. Very cool. So um, kind of looking forward to the, the future of, uh, of your career a little bit, what are some things that um, you are kind of learning and, and trying to actively get better at um, as a creative professional? One thing is that because I'm not a designer, I draw and, um, you know, I, I, I do those things on my own, but I'm not a creative director. And I think that there's, I look at my amazing friends who are, Tuna Bora, Paul Kim, Georgia Tribbiani, like Kanisha Sneed, they are all people who I feel like there's a way that they organize their ideas really well, you know, visual ideas or just hone certain concepts. And I'm trying to direct more stuff and um, working on a music video right now and just oh, uh, very cool, yeah, and and that I'm directing and animating and um, again, just I think that there's a lot of stuff that I can learn from even just like making a pitch deck where it's like, you know, just like oh, as yeah. a, um, again, not a thing that I have to do as a, an animator compositor. Like um, it's actually really helpful when I look at, you know, if I'm on a commercial job and I look at what all of the pitch materials are, you know, just to kind of have a sense of like, you know, okay, I'm animating this thing. This is, but, but I have, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm understanding a lot of like the thought behind this spot or, you know, I mean, I think it's helpful for anybody to do it to kind of like, you know, like write down your ideas and pull in research, you know, reference images and, you know, make a couple of frames like that's a that's a cool way to 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 start on any project. All right. So we try and end each episode with the same few questions. So first one, who is a dream client of yours? Like a Michelle Gondry or something? I Michelle. Again, I know he often works with, I don't know who is, probably some amazing French visual effects people, but you know, but just somebody who it's like, okay, he, he's, <laughs> he knows the value of like practical effects. He's open to like every single different, uh, like medium he'll, you know, it's sort of like, you know, what's, what's a funny effect? What's a, what's an interesting looking, I don't know. I can just imagine him being somebody like who's. Also, just so kind of knowledgeable himself, I could see be, he'd be like a dream person to, to work with. All right, next question. Your favorite animated film? Ooh. Um, who Framed Roger Rabbit? I know it's not completely animated, but yeah, I think that's... No, no. 
<laughs> That's probably the one. All right, next question. What do the people you love think that you do all day? Uh, I'm pretty sure they think I do CG. I think like modeling and animating, really. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> Definitely not. not. <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, all right, last question. What animal did you choose for your animalator and why? The Ouroboros, a snake eating its own tail. Nice. And then turning into a skeleton and then turning into back into a snake. Um, oh, I can't wait to see it. That sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, yeah. I uh, have always loved that as a kind of um, visual metaphor. And but even sometimes, you know, the sort of like snaking eating its own tail is the self-cannibalizing where it's, it, it, in a bad way, but also there's sort of the eternal infinity <laughs> kind of, uh, I guess, I guess meaning there too, which is cool. Mm -hmm. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for giving us your time and coming on the show. Thank you so much. This was fun. Animalators is created by the team at IV, recorded in the Weld Nashville studio and produced by Chad Michael Snavely. To keep up with the work we're doing at IV, visit iv.studio or follow us on Twitter at Identity Visuals. You can also follow Animalators on Twitter at Animalators to keep up with all of the new episodes. And be sure to check out animalators.com to see every animation from all of our guests. Our theme music is composed by Cody Fry. You can check out more of his music at codyfry.com. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends. You can leave us a review on iTunes and that helps more people find this show. Well, that's it for today's episode. Be sure and join us next time for another episode of Animalators. Curious conversations from the world of animation.